This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and once again, broadcasting to you from home. Uh, In the course of the past week, we have continued to make our attempts to master the technology of working away from the studio, and I think uh, we've made some headway. A couple of changes that we've instituted are when we take questions from the audience uh, and you listeners, uh, we will open the board up and I'm happy to have you read your entire question, but then we're going to cut it off and I will answer the question um, immediately so that um, there won't be talking over each other and some confusion, um, especially with the new technology. Uh, Things are changing quickly. Uh, You know, last week, uh, the big discussion was uh, the economy versus public health. Uh, Will we be opening the country for business by uh, April 12th? And it seems like uh, that's gone by the wayside. Um, Things have changed, especially with respect to statistics. Uh, In Connecticut last week at this time, we had 1,291 confirmed cases with 26 deaths. Uh, Today, uh, we now have 4,915 cases with 132 deaths. In the United States overall, we now have 7,146 Americans who have passed on related to the coronavirus as opposed to 1,700 last week. So we can see that things are changing very rapidly uh, with respect to growth and statistics. And a lot of what we learn is from looking at others and seeing others and see what works and what doesn't work. The controversy this week and discussion has centered around the use of surgical masks. So I thought this would be a good time to clarify to some degree the difference in masks. So surgical masks are the masks typically that a surgeon wears. It's what can best be termed a one-way mask in the sense that It's designed so that the respiration and any particles emitted by the surgical staff from their nose or mouth do not go into a wound when they are doing surgery. It is not there to protect them from anything coming in. That's when you use an N95 mask that we're all hearing about. And that's a two-way mask that you are fitted for. So when you go for a fitting for an N95 mask, they will play, they will uh, squirt out different scents from uh, an aerosol to see if you can smell it. It's the right size when you can no longer smell those scents. So nothing is coming in. That's why healthcare workers in the current environment need N95 masks. The other thing you're seeing are these plastic guards that people put over their faces. And that's a splash guard, it's not a mask per se. So it is a splash guard to protect the eyes and skin of the face. Uh, So many will wear goggles because your eyes are another way of having a virus enter into your body. So the discussion uh, this week is centered on the use of homemade cloth masks. Early on, 
uh, it was our feeling that the homemade cloth masks were not a good idea. Uh, but what we have found out from the statistics and from the studies being published now are these homemade cloth masks are actually a way of protecting others. Let me explain. We have not done adequate testing. We have not identified who has the virus. I may have the virus. Therefore, if I am in a store and accidentally come close to someone, which happens, I could put them in harm. By wearing a mask, I can protect others. It doesn't protect me. It's a one-way mask. So really, if you're wearing a mask now, when you go out and about, when you go shopping or whatever you find necessary to do, it is clearly a statement of caring. It's a, it's a statement that you care for the others around you, for other citizens. And that's why I plan to wear a mask from now on. When I am out and about, uh, I have no symptoms. Um, I have not been tested. But even if you've been tested, when you are tested for COVID-19, you're only negative at that point in time. That's it. So beyond that, the next minute or the next hour, you may be positive. So it's a great idea to wear a mask. It's easy enough. You can Google how to make a mask. Uh, the Surgeon General has a great video on how to just take a piece of cloth and some rubber bands to make a mask. And again, it's a way of protecting others. It shows that you are a good citizen. It has nothing to do with looks, okay? But it is clearly a sign of strength. When you look at countries where, again, learning from others, countries where wearing masks are common and those that are non-masks, particularly uh, they looked at South Korea where people have worn masks whenever they're ill and non-mask countries, they looked at Italy, you could see there was a change in the way the disease has spread. Also, by wearing a mask and avoiding someone else by becoming ill, we have found out that you can save between four and $6,000 in direct patient care. Those are the costs that you can save. So my point is, wearing a mask is a statement that you care about other citizens and other people when you are out and about. It is a sign of strength. It's something we should start doing. My guest today uh, is going to be coming on shortly. It's Dr. James O'Day. He is the Chief Operating Officer for Hartford Healthcare Behavioral Health Network. We've got a lot of questions about behavioral health and the psychological implications of COVID-19. Also, we have a short tape that I was able to get from my friend, Father Rick Frechette. For those of you who are regular listeners to this program, you'll know Father Rick Frechette is a Catholic priest working in Haiti. He has lived there since 1987, and I have the occasion to go down and work with him. He is from West Hartford, and he was able to send me a short audio clip clip to give us an idea of what's going on in Haiti amid COVID-19. This day in medicine, April 4th, 1969, the first totally artificial heart was implanted. Now, it's very interesting because there's debate over who implanted it. Um, it actually, I was able to find out, it was implanted by Dr. Denton Cooley. The debate stems from the fact that Dr. Cooley used to work in Dr. Michael DeBakey's lab. And he left and went to work at a neighboring hospital. 
and they set up a long competition. Dr. Cooley essentially took the artificial heart model and implanted it in, into Mr. Haskell Carp without the permission of Dr. DeBakey. And subsequently, Mr. Carp did live for four days. Dr. Cooley justified that in the sense that it was a life-and-death situation. Um, they didn't speak for many years, actually until 2007, when Dr. DeBakey was 99 years old and uh, Dr. Cooley uh, was also in his 90s. So it was interesting, that's the thing that set off a debate. The reason I bring it up is that all these years later, we can see that technology drove all this innovation. Our innovation here in the United States is so strong, and we've always been leaders in that. And now is a perfect time for us to set, up, set ourselves up to be leaders. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. James O'Day, Chief Operating Officer for Hartford HealthCare Behavioral Health Network. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Back to Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. I'm going to give you the phone numbers. We're probably not going to get to calls till the second half of the program. Uh, the phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me throughout the week at info at alessimd.com. And uh, my guest today is uh, Dr. James O'Day. Uh, Dr. O'Day has been a friend and a trusted uh, consultant uh, with me as a psychologist for the past 30 years. He is currently the chief operating officer for the Behavioral Health Network at Hartford HealthCare, um, which is the largest health network in Connecticut, probably in all of New England. It's, it's just a, a huge network. And uh, as I said, uh, Jim has been a friend. He's been in practice for 30 years, and he's the first person I thought to talk to about the psychological implications of COVID-19. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> good morning, Tony. Nice to talk to you, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Jim, the first thing that came to mind with COVID-19 is mourning and loss. I think we're all feeling a little sense of loss in terms of we miss our previous lives, being able to go out and go to work and have that regular routine. So what have you experienced and, and what can you share with the audience about every one of us dealing with these these symptoms of mourning? It's a great it's a great question, Tony, and I think it's completely accurate. When you take a look at all of the changes and the implications of what's happened, everyone's structure is radically different than it was a month and a half ago, six weeks ago. <clears throat> People's work schedule, um, the way they organize their kids going to school, so many more people kind of dealing with homeschool options. Everything is radically different. And I hear the same thing that you hear. People are trying to adjust to this new normal and really many struggling with it. Others actually finding new ways forward. I had a colleague recently this week who said to me, I spend a good amount of time down in Fairfield County these days. And I had a colleague say to me, I miss traffic. And I think it was just, it was a way to kind of get at this idea that I miss a normal life. However, some of those things might have been challenging. I miss some of the stuff that was part of my regular routine. 
And it really does challenge us to begin to think about how do I build new structure? How do I build new routines into my life that allow me to manage the stress associated with this whole crisis in a way that can be productive instead of damaging? So how do we do it? How should we be approaching this sense of loss? Because it looks like we're going to be here for a while. Um, and it, it's not going to get better on its own. Or will it? Will it get better? Will, will we get accustomed to it? Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we can all envision we will be in a post-COVID world at some point. But in the near term, everything is different. And so it really does require us to think about how can I do things differently. You know, one of the things that we talk about, Tony, is this important issue around resilience. And, and how, how have we been resilient in the past before? So one of the things that most people can sort of remind themselves is they've been through difficult circumstances before. And one of the things that we try to highlight for people is when you've gone through tough stuff before, what has worked for you? What are some of the coping strategies that you've relied on? How do you remind yourself of some of the strengths that you have as a way to get through this? You know, it's very natural in, in these kind of times. There's a level of anxiety and worry that happens and anxiety actually can be an activating force in a very constructive way. You know, anxiety is really part of this whole fight or flight kind of mechanism. And what we really need to do is focus on kind of facts, not fear. We need to think a little bit about preparation, not panic. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do that are within our control. And one of the first places to start is to say, I've been through difficult times before. What worked for me during those difficult times? And how do I remind myself of my own gifts and my own strengths and my own resources, even if I need to tap into them a little bit differently than the way that I do right now? Uh, I think that's great advice. A, a situation came up and somebody reached out to me who was recently hospitalized. Now, he was hospitalized for a period of nine days for a non-COVID-related illness. Um, but nevertheless, he could not have any visitors um, and precautions were being taken with him. It was early enough so that we didn't know. He did test negative on a couple of occasions. But the point he brought up was, he felt this intense loneliness by being in the hospital and not being able to have any family members there. And as he described it to me, it, it reminded me of what people had experienced when they were taken captive, when they were either prisoners or when they were kidnapped. Um, is there any way we could get around that? Because he said when he got out of the hospital, assimilation wasn't that easy. Um, you know, trying to find out what was everybody doing for 10 for 10 days. So is there any way to get around that? Yeah, I, I think there are. I think actually one of the things that we're going to learn out of this crisis, Tony, is a level. And you just said it before the break. <clears throat> this is a period where we have an opportunity to really leverage innovation, creative ideas. You know, one of the things that we did very early on at our behavioral health programs is that we recognize having face-to-face -face psychotherapy visits and primarily group visits was really not a good idea during the time that we have to deal with these issues. And we've been able to stand up any number of innovative strategies to provide telehealth, telephonic support, a lot of new strategies that probably in the time before might have taken us months or even years to kind of kick in. We did that in six days. 
Um, and my family, <clears throat> I, I have a regular habit of visiting my family on Sunday afternoons. It's one of the real joys of, of my life. So we're not sitting down for Sunday dinner uh, in the way that we used to. But my mother and father can sit on their front porch, on a screen porch, and, and I can visit with them from the front lawn. And we're still being very mindful of physical distancing, but we're not being socially isolated when you're doing physical distancing. You know, one of the things that people have talked about is the importance of, quote unquote, social distancing. And I think that's a little bit of a, a misnomer. The truth is what we really need to emphasize is a level of physical distance to promote safety so that we're not running the risk of sending viral particles back and forth. It doesn't mean that we can't be social, but we have to do it in a new way. So when I'm able to visit with my mother and my father and I'm 10 feet away and I'm on the front yard and I'm tossing a baseball with my kid, who's also 20 feet away from me, then we're able to still be social, but in new and different ways. And I think we're going we're gonna to find a level of creativity that is really important during this time. And some of those things we're going to want to hold on to. Uh, Jim, I, I mean, I guess what you've really brought to, to my mind now is the importance of face-to-face -face care. Um, you know, when you have uh, group sessions and one-on-one face-to-face -on -face sessions, I didn't realize there was that much more of an advantage to doing it. But one of the things I definitely wanted to chat with you about is the possibility of a mental health surge. We're talking about the physical surge coming right now, and it's already in New York. But are we expecting a mental health surge to happen after all this clears up? Like my friend who said, you know, there was this, I got out of the hospital, I'm with my family, and now I'm feeling all this anxiety. Um, are we going to see that later on? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Tony. It is an area that I'm particularly concerned about. I've talked to many of my leaders and the staff that work with us. Uh, I see this as sort of not a one-hump surge. I kind of see it as a two-hump camel. We're going to get through stuff with excellent preparation, and we're going to find a way to get through the medical surgical crisis that is coming here in the next, let's call it, four to eight weeks. On the other side of that, I think what we're going to find is there's such instability in society. There's economic distress. There is social distress. And I think there's going to be a level of burnout even amongst these courageous healthcare professionals that I think after we get through that wave, I do think there's going to be a surge of people who have been dealing with these issues, but probably maybe not in the most adaptive and constructive way. So we're preparing ourselves for the idea that there's a medical surge crisis that is coming that we're going to be well prepared for. But after that, we have to be prepared for the emotional impact of what's happening. And I do think we're going to see people who are going to reach out for care, who are going to need care. And we need to ensure that that care is available as well. In fact, Tony, if I can say one other thing, one of the things that we've seen in other parts of the world and other parts of the country, we have seen increases in domestic violence. We've seen increases in child abuse. People are working in cramped quarters, and they're not using, they don't have some of the same decompression tools that they used to. My kids go off to school, sure. thank goodness, those kind of things, people yep. working from home. I do think that we, um, w there is a possibility that, that we're going to see these kind of increases in some of the early warning signs that we used to it, uh, to see you know, we're losing some of those eyes and ears. We're losing teachers who might have picked up on something going on in a home. We're lo losing other folks that might have seen things. So I, yep. 
I do want to highlight this idea that we are our brother's keepers. And, and if you see something that you're a little concerned about with somebody in your neighborhood or somebody in your community, it's a really good time to be alert to that because we want to make sure that we reach out to people who are struggling. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you for that information. And thanks for all you're doing over at Hartford Healthcare. And I'm sure I'll be calling on you in the future uh, for more advice. Thanks again. Uh, you're very welcome, Tony. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks you for what you're doing. All right. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back, and I'll be able to answer your questions. We also have a short audio clip from Father Rick Frechette. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Next, I want to play a short audio clip that I was able to get from my good friend, Father Rick Frechette, um, who uh, many of you know as regular listeners I work with in Haiti. And I wanted to get an idea of what was going on in Haiti with respect to COVID-19, because we know Haiti is a developing country. Um, they don't have, if we don't have a lot of tests, you know they don't have a lot of way of testing uh, for COVID-19. Plus, so many people live in close proximity to each other. Um, so with that, we're going to roll that uh, short uh, uh, clip, and then I'm going to get to some questions. Hello to Tony and all your listeners. Uh, we've been watching how you're managing health rounds for Connecticut, which I'm sure is very challenging these days since the virus is so strong in New York now and reaching up into Connecticut as well in New England. And we want to say, first of all, that we're in solidarity with you and all your listeners, and we're very sorry to see how strong the coronavirus has come. And uh, we, we offer our prayers and best wishes and hope for a fast end for all of you. By the same token, we're still enjoying a calm before the storm, and we're very lucky so far. People seem to be very scared to death of the virus here in Haiti. Everybody has masks or some kind of rag even over their mouth and nose or the, the uh, bandana of the, of the bandits and thieves. Uh, but everybody seems to be trying to find some kind of protection, washing their hands all the time, keeping distance, Everybody's talking about it. This is really a good sign and hope that it leads to prevention of spread. Haiti publishes that it has 15 cases. We all know those numbers are, are as good as the uh, scope of your testing. Uh, at our own St. Luke Hospital, we have and had, have had real cases, and we also have a lot of suspect cases that it's not so easy to test. And we're doing our best with our very limited supplies. We're making uh, our own masks because of a shortage. We're making them out of material for uh, a bathrobe because that's what we have on hand. And we're also making them for our neighbors. So we have all kinds of activity to try to make 30,000 masks in just the next few days so we can distribute them around all the places where we work. And we're buying up granulated uh, Clorox and chlorine as much as we can and we're distributing small baggies so that people can have their own hand washing stations in their own areas which we all know are densely and overly crowded. In any case our prayers are with you in your difficult times and uh, please pray for us that we might keep this streak of good luck going 
of not having so many cases to turn us all upside down uh, medically and with all the human tragedy that's involved. Thank you and good night. Uh, that is an amazing soundbite because here's Father Rick Frechette in Haiti, which has nothing. They have two respirators. Um, they were portable respirators that I brought down years ago. Um, and here he is praying for us and concerned about all of us um, and doing whatever he can. Um, he's clearly, uh, for, well, maybe I'm showing my age, he's clearly MacGyver. He will find a way to get around this, like packaging up chlorine to distribute to people so they have some way of sanitizing their homes. Um, with that, if you're so inclined, a donation would be appropriate to help Father Rick out. And you could do that. I know he'll never say it, but I'm going to say it. You go to St. Luke. Haiti.org. With that, we're going to grab some questions. Um, we're going to start with Steve from Waterbury, who's been very patient. Uh, Steve, you have a question. Hello. Thank you, Dr. Oleski. Uh, four, four quick things. Uh, just to segue with the previous person you had on, the uh, doctor, I assume with uh, yeah, the birth rate's probably going to go up, and that'll probably cause a lot of, necessary, or a lot of undue stress as well. Um, but do you think that washing your face often also would be advisable? Uh, okay, uh, that are those all your questions? Because then we're going to cut you off, and I'm going to so, answer now. Yeah, my other question would be, uh, if you were to take like shallow breaths, maybe from the side of your mouth, do you think that would uh, be advisable as well? Take what from the side of your mouth? Like instead of breathing through your nose, like shallow breaths, maybe through like the side okay. of your mouth. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for those Thanks. questions. So uh, a couple of things: is is washing your face helpful? Yes. Um, obviously, uh, washing your hands are key because we bring our hands to our face and our nose and mouth. But whenever we're washing, uh, it's always a good idea to wash as many parts as we can, um, which leads me to another question. I'm glad you brought that up. People have said, uh, what will kill the virus? Um, do you need to use antibacterial soap? Do you need to use Lysol or chlorine? This virus is very vulnerable to anything to any type of detergent. So just plain soap will do it. It's interesting that it's not a very strong virus from the standpoint of being able to live on surfaces. So um, I, I've heard it even said, even if you don't have soap, if you have warm water and you just rub your hands for 20 seconds in the same way as if you washed your hands, you would be killing off the virus. So uh, the idea about breathing... Um, I don't know if that would help very much because we still have these areas uh, available. What will help is, as I said at the beginning of the show, wearing a mask so you're not spreading this to other people. With that, we'll go to the next question. We have Doug from Waterbury. Hey, Doug. Good morning. Morning. Oh, good. Uh, I could hear hear you better. Um, I'm... I, I, I'm planning on not getting COVID-19, so I am wondering this. What happens if I'm working out in the yard and I fall and I break a bone or I uh, stick something in my eye? What do I have to do? Run into the house and phone the hospital and say, I want to drive myself down, but I'm not COVID-19? Um, how does that work? Great question, Doug. Thanks for the question. Um, so, Doug, in that case, uh, first of all, uh, 
you would still do whatever you would do normally. So some things are going to demand that you go to an urgent care center. Um, other things, you'll go to an emergency room. Uh, when you get to the emergency room, there will be proper screening to see if you have a fever or any symptoms of COVID-19, and you will be appropriately uh, positioned away from COVID-19 patients. Uh, what the UConn is doing, the University of Connecticut, when you brought up the idea of breaking a bone or spraining something, uh, what they've done is the Musculoskeletal Institute that's on the campus is opened as an emergency room just for orthopedics. So we have an attending uh, physician as well as uh, advanced practice practitioners there manning that um, throughout the day. So if you went to the emergency room at UConn, uh, and it was an orthopedic problem, they would send you right down the hill, and they have x-ray, they have MRI, CT, casting, everything else that's needed for an orthopedic emergency. So my advice there, Doug, is do what you would do normally, especially if it's a true emergency like a heart attack, stroke. Just get to the hospital. With that, we're going to take another short break, and then we're going to be back for our final segment. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're in the final segment of our program. Um, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Also, you can reach me during the week at info at alessimd.com, and I'm happy to answer your questions. I've had so many good questions on uh, the email, and I want to get to some of them. And probably one of the best questions I've had, and, and often it's things I haven't thought of, but um, this one was uh, from Greg, who said, uh, I use a CPAP, and it got me to thinking. I saw a demo on the news of Governor Cuomo with a hand ventilator. If someone needed a respirator and none were available, would a CPAP machine help? And I found this so interesting because it got me thinking about it. So let me explain a little bit. There are several pieces of equipment that are called positive pressure ventilators. Those include CPAP, BiPAP, and a regular standard PEEP ventilator. So CPAP, continuous positive air, airway pressure, is something people use when they have apnea, sleep apnea. It keeps the alveoli the fine endings in our lungs open at the end of expiration, letting you get more oxygen. BiPAP works in a similar way. It's called bi-level positive airway pressure, something used a little bit more these days and a little bit more advanced than CPAP in terms of the pressure it generates. And PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure, that's the term we use for the pressure generated by a ventilator, the thing everybody's looking for. What I found interesting is that Governor Cuomo, knowing that he was going to be short of ventilators with the typical PEEP, has gone out and bought as many BiPAP machines, similar to CPAP, BiPAP machines, as he could find. So again, it would not take the place of a full-blown ventilator where you can anesthetize the patient, uh, put them to sleep, and breathe for them. But by the same token, those machines will help get your oxygenation level up. So it's interesting that we're going to be hearing more about that 
And and I thought it was just such a great question uh, because it got me thinking about it as well. And obviously we're seeing more of that. So, Greg, great question. Uh, another question that that came in, um, if infected with COVID-19, but asymptomatic, how long do you stay contagious? Uh, we believe that asymptomatic patients will remain contagious for up to nine days. Um, so that's why they put a two-week quarantine on this in terms of it being recommended. Unfortunately, without more widespread testing, we've not been able to identify these patients. And what we do believe is that after about 21 days, um, people who have been infected will be generating enough antibody that protein, that part of your body that will fight off the infection. And it's those antibodies that we have sought after. So you're hearing a lot more about antibody tests. Um, we heard Dr. Burks talk about it. We heard uh, Dr. Fauci talk about it. So we've kind of skipped the test. Instead of identifying people who have the virus, we want to get to identify people who have survived the virus with the thought that with those antibodies, they can go back to work. They can go back and treat patients. Now, we don't know that for sure, but if it's typical and you follow the principles of immunology, um, those antibodies can last a long time, and we know that from the previous SARS virus. So testing for those antibodies is what's going to be key now in getting to the next step in how we get the economy back, how we get back to our lives. In fact, in England and other places, they have started uh, immunologic surveys. So you get a card, you get an identification of some way in your passport that you have the antibodies, thus allowing you to go back to work. So I think that's what we're going to hear next, and we're going to be spending more time talking about that uh, in the coming weeks. Um, another question that's come up uh, quite a bit is uh, the use of ibuprofen products um, in the face of COVID-19. In this case, uh, this email from Mark um, talked about Mobic or Meloxicam. And as I said before, as far as we can tell, the NSAIDs are not immunosuppressants, although they are anti-inflammatory. So if you take those medications, for example, for arthritis or you take them for migraine treatment, uh, you should continue to take those medications. Someone was on the air uh, and said she was in the hospital and they wouldn't give her uh, Advil or leave because it would hurt her. But in that particular case, uh, she also had hepatitis. So you have to know the whole patient. So by and large, from what we know today, taking those medications are not going to be harmful um, overall. So it's important to note. In closing, I want to share with you all the fact that what I've learned more recently is that we don't know what we don't know. Basically, we're learning together as we move through this. And that's why every week on this program, we're going to have new information. For you. We don't know when a vaccine is going to be available. Well, we know one will, but we just don't know when. We don't know how long-lasting an antibody is. We don't know when sports are going to be back yet. We do know that it's going to be a new world when we come back. We also know 
that what we need to do now is put politics aside at all levels. There's plenty of time to place blame. And history will address who did the right thing and who did the wrong thing. But now's not the time to start fighting over that. I also know that there was never a time where it is more necessary for us to become reliant on good science. Good science. Things that we have learned over time. Because those are the things that are going to save us in a pandemic. Listen to the science of it. And the interesting thing is when you listen to the scientists and the experts at this, they're all saying the same thing. The one thing they're all saying is stay home. By staying home as much as you possibly can, you will be staying safe and you will be setting up a situation where others can be safe. And that's the most important thing. Stay safe, stay healthy. And I am going to be wearing a mask because I think it's time that we did that, that we stood tall for our neighbors, and I think it's the neighborly thing to do. With that, I want to take uh, thanks to uh, my guest today, uh, Dr. Jim O'Day. Also want to thank Father Rick Frechette for taking time out uh, to make that little audio clip. I also want to thank Mike Oko, who has been on the board, who I rely on more than ever now uh, in terms of getting this show out, and Joey Burgoyne for setting me up here at home. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be talking more about the coronavirus, but we're going to be talking about new things that have come up during the week. As always, I really enjoy getting your questions at info at alessimd.com. If you missed any part of today's broadcast, Every week, we're getting the podcast out at the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can download it for free wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes. Please remember to OSO help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You can do that by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.